that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You are listening to the Reality Steve podcast with your host, Reality Steve. He's got all the latest info and behind the scenes juice on Claire's upcoming season of The Bachelorette and interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. Now, here's Reality Steve. Everybody, welcome to podcast number 182. I am your host, Reality Steve. Got a very interesting show for you this week. It's not Bachelor related at all. It's not even reality TV related at all. But we're going a little back to the future. It's one of my favorite movies from the 1980s. If not my favorite movie, the more I talk about it, it usually becomes my favorite one. And then when I get on my Karate Kid I do a deep dive on Karate Kid. That ends up being my number one. But those two, I'd say, are number one and two of my all-time favorite movies. Just because I've seen them so many times. I know so much about the back history. I do a lot of deep dives on them. But this week, I was introduced to a man uh, through a former podcast guest and friend of mine, Jen Decker. You've heard her on this podcast a couple times. Um, My podcast guest this week is a guy named Brad Gilmore. And he wrote a book called Back from the Future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. It came out a couple weeks ago on Amazon. I have the link to it on today's website. And it just breaks down a lot of stuff from the movie that if you're a diehard fan, you've probably heard over the years. But if you're a casual fan who's even seen it three, four, five times, I mean, it's it's on cable a lot. You usually probably stop and watch it. Uh, but there's a lot of backstory to this movie that maybe you don't know. And this book covers it all. And I... I love going down a wormhole with this movie. Um, you'll hear my, the excitement in my voice talking about this movie with Brad today. It's just, I could talk back to the future for hours. Talk about hypotheticals. Talk about just time travel in general. Because this was the movie, for me, in terms of time travel. There were time travel movies before Back to the Future There have been plenty of time travel movies and TV shows, movies and TV shows that incorporated some sort of time travel in them. But this movie was the standard for me. And um, I basically put anything that uses time travel as a storyline up against Back to the Future and how they use theirs. And I've yet to find a movie or TV show that used it better than Back to the Future did. But that's the thing. Time travel isn't real. So there are no set rules for when you use time travel in a TV show or a movie. I just thought Back to the Future did it better than anybody before it and anybody after it. One thing that you will not hear on this podcast, unfortunately, but I'm going to talk about it right now, is because we recorded, Brad and I recorded this podcast a week ago. Well, this past Monday, actor Josh Gad, who plays Olaf uh, in Frozen, the voice of Olaf in Frozen, The last two weeks, he started a series during quarantine where he gets the cast of old movies together and has them on a Zoom call all at one time. He's only two weeks in, 
Two weeks ago, he did The Goonies. A lot of um, actors from that. He got them all on a Zoom call. They would reread certain scenes from the movies. Just really cool nostalgia stuff. Well, this past Monday, after I had recorded with Brad, he did Back to the Future and had every important character from the movie on, including the two main writers, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis. Um, the only person he didn't get on that was a, a main character in this movie was Biff. Uh, he said the schedules just didn't work out. But I will include the YouTube video of it. It's about 30 minutes long. If you're a Back to the Future fan, if this doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what will. It was so cool seeing all of them back together, talking about the movie, reading lines. They even had a special surprise at the end. I mean, it's awesome. Um, and for a Back to the Future nerd like me, um, it was <laughs> it was Christmas Day for me. So Josh Gad is really doing some great work. I'm so interested to see what his next uh, one is next Monday. But he he releases them every Monday. So and I don't think he gives a um, a preview of who it's going to be. He just hey it posts on Monday and we'll see what uh, what cast he has recreated. I mean that seems to be the big thing now. When John Krasinski got the Office cast together, that was great. Uh, Parks and Rec did their thing on NBC recently. That was great. Everyone likes to see their favorite TV shows and movies from the past um, from years ago and see the cast reconnect and and talk about their time. I mean, it's just a cool thing to see, and we've never seen anything like this with Back to the Future. The the video is included on um, my website today, so go check it out. I've embedded it in the the column today, and and you can take a look at it. It's about 30 minutes long. And it's just, it's awesome. It's its so cool. So anyway, let's get going uh, with podcast number 182. Let's bring him in. Uh, he is the author of the number one bestseller book, Back from the Future. He hosts the Back to the Future, the podcast. Also co-hosts a radio show with WWE personality Booker T on 97.5 in Houston. It is Brad Gilmore. Brad, thanks for joining me this week. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, this is uh, interesting because you and I have um, a very similar passion for the Back to the Future trilogy. Uh, You don't know this about me, but I'm just as big a fan as you are. So when our mutual friend Jen Decker had told me about you had a book out, I was like, or I think I saw it on our Instagram story, and I'm like, I need to get that. Um, I got your book. I read it in one sitting. Um, I loved it. And there's so many things about back to the future that I've talked about with my friends over the years. And now it'll be fun to talk about with, uh, with an expert on this, but kind of fill everybody in on your love for this trilogy, when it started, um, and kind of how you got to the point of where you decided you wanted to write a book about it. Yeah. Um, to go, I guess, back to the beginning, I was back, you know, not to date myself or whatever, but I was born after all the movies that already came out, right? So I was born in the early 1990s, and um, I had to discover these movies later than everybody else. Sorry, there's a plane flying over my house, but um, I had to discover these movies later than everybody else. So it was, you know, maybe the year 2000 or 1999 when I first saw Back to the Future, Mm. and ironically enough, it was on the Disney Channel, which I find funny now because Disney rejected the movie back in the day. But I saw it on the Disney Channel, and I remember going to school the next day and asking all my friends, "Did you see back? Have you ever seen this movie, Back to the Future?" No one had ever heard of it. And um, I have a much older family, so my brother, my oldest brother, and I have a twenty-three year age difference between us. So, well, I you know went to them, and I'm like, "Have you all ever heard of Back to the Future?" And they're like, "Absolutely, of course we have." 
And so it started there, you know, and I just kind of felt like a bond to my older siblings and the movies. Obviously, when everybody sees them for the first time, capture your mind and, and attention. And Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly is the coolest thing that you've ever seen. And, you know, Christopher Lloyd's portrayal as Doc is just so out there. You have to love it as a kid. It's very cartoony in a lot of ways. And so I was just, you know, I was always a fan and I watched the movies, watch, watch, watch. And it was around 2015, uh, you know, real big podcast boom. As you know, everybody had a podcast and I was actually trying to find something since it was the year 2015. I was like, I wonder if there's a Back to the Future podcast out there. So I went to the Apple store and I realized there wasn't one. I was like, man, that sucks. And I was actually listening to this Seinfeld podcast at the time. I'm like, man, there'd be great if somebody did a Back to the Future show like this. And I was like, wait a minute, I could do it. Why don't I just do it? And that's when I started the Back to the Future podcast. And then it just kind of all snowballed out of there. And as you know, whenever you just, especially when you do something like a podcast about a specified subject, you just obsess over it. And you go to all these, de- you know, learn all these details that you didn't even know before. Even when I thought I was a hardcore fan, I wasn't. You know, I didn't know all this stuff that, about the movies. And I learned it through the podcast. And then the podcast kind of caught on. And next thing I know, um, some mutual friends of mine published a book through this publisher mango. And then I started talking to them and then a book was written. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many things. I mean, this is a movie that when it comes on TNT, no matter what part of the movie I join in, I'm, I'm watching it till the end. So to say how many times have I seen this movie in my life? It's it's tough to say from beginning to end, but parts of this movie easily 50 to 75 times in my life. Like this is, and then now when I watch it, if I come across it on TNT, um, it's now it's just looking for things that I maybe didn't realize before. And, you know, that's, that's really all I watch it for to see, like, is there anything that I've missed in this movie? And there's one thing that I'm going to get to later that I've always found interesting. That's a, it's, this movie is, is, is great for so many reasons, but I think one of the main things it's, it's continuity is so good and they really don't screw up any continuity things. There is one that happens in the second movie that I'll get to later, but as as we talk today, and it's something you wrote about in the book, you kind of change your mind daily on which movie is the best of the three. Um, yeah. As we speak right now, how would you rank the movies? You know, it's so hard, Steve, and I really do. I change my mind all the time because I was a kid. Back to the Future 3 was my favorite one by far. Like really? It wasn't even close. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't even close. And I don't know if that's because I'm from Texas and it had like a Western vibe and I grew up on Westerns, so I just kind of loved it. Yeah. But um, so three was always my favorite when I was a kid. And then when you grow, you know, when you get older and you watch and you know that the first one is just an untouchable movie. It's just so perfect. It's hard not to put it number one. So my rankings have been somewhat consistent recently, but I do go uh, Back to the Future 1, Back to the Future 3, Back to the Future 2. I only put two last for now. I mean, it's the darkest of the three, obviously, Yeah. mainly for the alternate 1985 stuff. Um, really, that's the only dark part of the entire movie. But uh, when you, it's also interesting when you think about it. I think some of the most iconic, I don't know, imagery and some of the most iconic um, pieces of merchandise or props come from Back to the Future 2. You know, Sports Almanac, the Flying DeLorean, the Pepsi Perfect, the Hoverboard. Some of the things that are synonymous, Mr. Fusion. I mean, although those are at the, the, end, la- the, the laceless, movie. laceless shoes that got la- yeah, released, the, you know? the Air Mags, yeah. yeah, the the hat, the the Michael J. Fox hat, the kind of multicolor hat. Yeah, there's so many things from that one that are, I think, maybe the most iconic things in the series. 
So it is funny that I put that last, even, you know, the hydrating pizza. I could go on and on and on. But um, uh, that's how I sits right now. And I think that I like three so much because it's real similar to the first one in a lot of ways. And, and I say that because when we think about Back to the Future Part 1, it's Marty and Doc stuck in the past, and they don't know. They, they try to figure out how to get back to the future. Yeah. And Marty knows, okay, well, hey, the lightning's going to strike the clock tower on this day at this time. And Doc said, that's how we can do it. And then they find out almost exact similar circumstances. Oh, a train's going to come by on this day at this time, and this is our only shot to do it. If we don't do it now, we're going to die. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, they have they have those similarities to each other. So I think that's why I like them both so much. And I think, look, I understand why people maybe rank two as their least favorite. I, for the longest time, I mean, one will always be iconic to me and I'll never put anything above it, but I've always liked two better than three for two reasons. Number one, uh, I gamble myself. So the whole Gray Sports Almanac storyline was fascinating to me. Um, (laughs) And then the other thing was just, I liked... I understand it got confusing to a lot of people. I, I, I introduced this trilogy to my niece and nephew who are within the last year. And they when I showed it to them, they were 14 and 11. And they were thoroughly confused by two. They didn't understand what was happening. And I guess at the time, maybe when I watched it, because in 1985, when the first one came out, I was 10. So I was prime age. And then when it, then number two came out in 89, I was 14. Maybe I didn't understand it right when it came out in terms of, wait a second, what what happened? What was the alternate? How did the alternate happen? Um, but obviously, as you get older, you understand. I, I understand where it gets confusing to people, but with so many different time periods in two, I just thought it was so good because the continuity worked so well. They didn't, they played everything to a T to go back to 1955 and have to deal with your other selves that were there. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Like, I. That's where I love to because I I don't disagree with you on that at all. Yeah. I don't disagree with you at, at, on that at all. And I think that like for a minute two, like I said, my they change all the time. And for a minute two was my favorite just because you could go through all these timelines. And I love how two ends. I love that it ends on a cliffhanger. Yeah, I love that um, the Western Union man comes and he finds Marty McFly standing there at this exact moment at this exact time. And and Back to the Future two is where I actually get the title for the book. Because at the very end of the movie, when um, uh, the, the original 1955 Doc sends the original Marty back to the future, and you see Marty running th- on the corner from you know the corner of the screen yeah. by the movie theater down the fire trails, and he comes up to Doc and he says, "You know, Doc goes, I just sent you back to the future," and, and Marty goes, "Oh yeah, but I'm back. I'm back from the future." Um, that's where I actually got the title of the book. So I love I love Back to the Future too, and the rewatchability of all three films. Um, is really is really great and i think it's especially great in two and three because they leave so many things for you to pick up on oh yeah but i think that back to the future one kind of and i think maybe indiana jones or raiders the first raiders i think that they kind of started it and then back to the future picked it up with the easter eggs and then being able to go back and watch and say like oh look i didn't notice that harold lloyd the actor is hanging off a clock and doc's laboratory in the opening shot yep. you know i didn't know i never knew noticed that or i didn't notice this or this or shonash ravine clayton ravine uh eastwood ravine lone pine twin pine they did so many things like that and i think that also lends to the rewatchability of it for even someone like me i can't remember what it was but i had the movie on i don't know maybe three weeks ago and i saw something that i had never seen before 
Yeah. So it always happens. It just continues to happen. Oh, for sure. It's just, it's all, when when they do come on, no matter if it's one, two, or three, I'm always looking for Easter eggs and always looking for stuff that I just did not notice the first time around or the first 50 times around. Um, <laughs> you know, the other thing, one of the things you talk about in your book, which I think on the surface, when I bring it up now, people will be like, you're crazy. But when you really think about it, you might be onto something. And you call this, the Back to the Future trilogy, the greatest trilogy in movie history and there's a reason that you say that because and i want you to explain it but why you actually and it's not a bias just because it's you know your favorite if you really break it down why you think this is the greatest trilogy ever yeah so i call it the greatest pure trilogy of all time and what i mean by that is there's no other entries into the franchise there's not a fourth one there's not a reboot there's not a remake there's not a sequel trilogy of any kind there's no prequel so that eliminates a lot of these films like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones. Um, I mean, a lot of them. I mean, yeah. you could think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as you know, out of there. James Bond. You, you can't really pick a, a, a trilogy out of any of those. There's too many films in them. So I think it's really down to Back to the Future or Godfather. And really, it's your argument is dependent upon who has the better third film. And I think that it's Back to the Future has a better third film. I yeah. think that Godfather 3 kind of takes a big nosedive. Um I'd rather watch Jack than Godfather 3. So um, that's why I think it's the greatest pure trilogy of all time. And I just don't know if there's anything else out there that – because you see so many trilogies, they just dip and dip and dip in quality. I mean even think about Jaws if we're talking about Steven Spielberg and where 2 and 3 and you know the revenge went. It just completely drops off in quality. So with Back to the Future, they're all three equally enjoyable. Um, sure, number one might be a perfect film. And two and three, you can you know flip flop in your rankings, but they're all three so enjoyable, and there's no drop off in quality. And I just think that for a series that hasn't been touched since it came out, um, probably never will be touched at least for the next for, for the foreseeable future. I think it's the greatest pure trilogy of all time, and I challenge anybody really to come up with a better three films uh, with no other entries in them than back to the future. Yeah, no, I don't. I once, when I read that, I was like, wait, there's gotta be another one. And I just sat there and tried to rack my brain. I'm like, no, I don't, I can't think of one where they're just only three movies were made. And like you said, no reboots, no prequels, nothing. Um, you know, if you want to put it up against the original three star Wars of star Wars, empire strikes back, return of the Jedi. But that's comparing apples to oranges. We're not saying that. You're saying, like you said, best pure trilogy. And But even if you do that, Steve, it's a battle, yeah. right? I'm, I'm not saying that Back to the Future comes out of the other side of it, but it's still a battle. For sure. So I'll put Back to the Future 1, really, I'll put it against Empire Strikes Back, and we'll see, we'll see how that debate would, would come out. Yeah. But I, I think that I feel pretty confident going in with that. Yeah, I, I don't hear anybody talk about the Star Wars films as, as they do any of the th- first three as they do with back to the future one where many people say back to the future one is just a perfect film yeah and that's not my bias that's not my because i wrote a book i've heard many movie critics people who i really respect say oh yeah well, you put back to the future in the perfect category like that's just an untouchable movie i don't hear the same thing about star wars maybe that's just i'm not listening for it but um yeah I, that's why i think back to the future is a great pure trilogy though Hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? 
That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. And, and one of the things that I really like about Back to the Future is time travel movies before Back to the Future, There was there's clearly ones that were made before that. I mean, Terminator has a time travel element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you, when you deal with time travel in movies and even TV shows, Lost became a really, you know, probably the biggest time travel TV show of our generation. There's no universal rules when it comes to time travel. Anyone making a time travel movie or a television show can kind of take whatever liberties they want because there's no set standard since it's not real. There's no such thing as time travel. But to me, after seeing Back to the Future, everything I saw from that point that had time travel in it, I compared it to how did they use their time travel versus how did Back to the Future use it? Do you, did you ever look at it that way? Oh, well, I mean, obviously, of course, everything I, I compare to Back to the Future. And I mean, even I think everybody does. Even the biggest movie of all time, Avengers Endgame, makes two references to Back to the Future yeah. when they're discussing time travel. Because even the filmmakers knew the Ru- Russo brothers, Kevin Feige, everyone knew if you're going to do a time travel movie, everybody's immediately going to think of Back to the Future. That's the first thing everyone's going to think of. So let's make reference to it. And I think the reason why the time travel and back to the future works so well is because it's simple. You can't move through time. You can only move. I mean, you can't move through space. You can only move through time. If, if I, you know, go 88 miles per hour out of my driveway, I'm going to end up however many years in the past or future in that same location. It's linear. It's easy to, to follow. Oh, if I go here and I pick up this almanac that could have consequences on the past. And then I go back to an alternate 1985 or, if I'm in 1955 and I interrupt my parents' first meeting, that means I won't be born. So I got to – So it just – everything is straightforward and it's simple. Mm-hmm. They don't overcomplicate it. I think that when you get into the time cops or even Terminator to a certain extent, it's a little bit confusing um, at times, especially as that franchise has gone on and on. Yeah. I don't even understand no. anything about it. Um, and, and, and even like um, Avengers Endgame, I think that's even a good example. I'm not exactly sure. If someone said – explain the rules of time travel and Avengers Endgame in, in one tweet. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I don't really understand. And maybe I'm just a little bit slower than everybody else, but I, didn't, I don't understand how they, how they did it. It didn't make sense to me. Why is Steve Rogers old at the end? I don't get it. But with Back to the Future, everything's simple. It's straightforward. And, and even the slowest of audience members, such as myself, or even the most uh, high IQ individuals can follow along with it, and and it's not too complicated. I think that's why they really hit it out of the park. Yeah, like I said, the continuity on, on all three movies was just spot on. They had so many things that everything just adds up, and you're just once everything plays out, and then you can look back on certain things and be like, oh yeah. I mean, take for example, um, in the in the second one, um, I, I just think the research that they did on the show, like. In the second one, when old Biff comes back to 1955 to give young Biff the almanac, and they're in the garage, and they turn on the radio so he can prove to him that he has the scores for every game through the century, and they turn on our game, and it's and it's a and it's a college football game where UCLA is trailing 17-16, and 
and there's barely any time left, and they kick a field goal. If you look back into the annals of Google, you could find out that on November 12, 1955, there was a football game that ended 1917 between UCLA and Washington. Like the fact that they would take something so minuscule but still make it important to the movie, to me, that screams. This it was just one of the other reasons why I loved the movie because on a on a simple detail like that, they could have just made up some bullshit you know game and. Uh, just so they could advance their storyline in the movie. But it was a real thing. That game happened November 12th, 1955. UCLA beat Washington 1917 on a field goal. I think when you're listening on the radio with the with the two biffs, I think it was a game ender. In real in the real game it was like I think there was a few seconds left. You know, it's like come on, I'm not going to give them shit for that. But <laughs> right. stuff like that well, is amazing to me. And I think that that's why to everybody connects with these movies because of course it has a fantastical element of course we know time travel is real uh, doc brown really didn't invent the delorean time machine and the flux capacitor we know that as an audience but everything else is super grounded in reality right i mean it's about coming of age getting your first car uh, trying to fall in love trying to get to your awkward stage learning to stand up for yourself all of these things uh learning that you know, sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me as marty mcfly has to learn all these real elements, and it's it's different than – I don't know. I don't want to harp on Avengers Endgame because I love the movie, but we know that Thanos and the Infinity Stones, is, it's just – that's too fantastical, yeah. right? We're back to the future. The, the, the story is such grounded in real human emotions and things that we all went through or are going through or are going to go through at some point in our lives so we connect with it more. And just having that small detail about – uh, you know, 1917 between UCLA, it, it it lends itself to, like you said, the realism that they try to ground it in as much as possible. And I mean, even going into Back to the Future 2, when they talk about, you know, the Cubs beating Miami in the World Series, it just makes it's like, oh, I know the Cubs, you know, I, oh, man, they won the World Series. It just kind of lends it again to that. This could be a real world. Yeah, no, I I. I think there's so many elements of two that I definitely uh, I'm going to get to in a second. Um, a couple things that if you're if you're a diehard fan, you know this, but if you're just a casual fan of Back to the Future and you've seen it a few times in your life, you may not know this. Um, you know the fact that Michael J. Fox was not originally cast for the role of Marty McFly, and not only was he not originally cast, like they started filming the movie with Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. I mean, they were. I think how many weeks into filming were they with him? It wasn't like they were uh, six weeks, six, six weeks, weeks into filming. Into yeah. So they originally, I think they originally went to Michael J. Fox and he said, I couldn't. Cause right at that point he was one of the biggest well, he, stars. He, he didn't say that ties. he couldn't. It was um, the, the producer, Gary Goldberg, uh, a family ties. They went to him and they said, we want Michael. And he's like, Hey, I can't let Michael out. Um, Family Ties is the, the biggest show in the world right now. And Alex P. Keaton is too important to the show for him just to disappear for a couple episodes or what have you. So they went to him originally, and Gary Goldberg turned it down. So they had to go to the next choice. And the next choice was Eric Stoltz, who, um, by all accounts from everybody, is a fine and talented actor. And, you know, they shot for six weeks with him. Uh, they almost filmed the entire movie. I talked to. Um, Don Fullerlove, who plays Mayor Goldie Wilson on my podcast, and he said, I was done. I was at home. I was chilling. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about Back to the Future. Yeah. And then, um, you know, they got the call that we have to let Eric go because Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis, they were in a, you know, look going over the dailies for the film. And 
Zemeckis goes, something's just not clicking. And Spielberg was like, yeah, I don't think you're getting the jokes that you wanted. The, the laughs aren't there. And Eric Stoltz was playing it like a guy who went back in time and was freaked out. I think like most people would play it, but he played it a little bit too on the nose, a little bit too real. And um, it just didn't it didn't vibe. It didn't vibe with everybody. It didn't vibe with the, with the way the movie was. And so then they went back to um, Michael J. Fox and Gary Goldberger, and they asked Gary, he's like, hey, man, we have to have Michael J. Fox. He would hit the comedy perfectly. So Gary Goldberg calls Michael J. Fox in his office and says, hey, here's a script. It's called Back to the Future. I want you to go home and read it. Uh, if you want to do it, you have my blessing, but know that family ties always has to come first. So you always have to film your family tie scenes first before you do any work on this Back to the Future movie. Michael J. Fox took the script. He pushed it. He put it back down on Gary Goldberg's desk. He said, it's the best thing I've ever read. Yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah. And he would film family ties during the day and would go film Back to the Future at night. That was basically his schedule. I don't know how this guy slept, but that's basically the way it was working uh, for this. Um, I think the, the one of the other things was – you mentioned in your book the character of Biff, played by Thomas Thomas F. Wilson, and uh, it is amazing. Um, it, he's kind of underrated in how many characters he was able to play in the span of three trilogies. I think it was seven or eight, right? Yeah, I think it was seven variations of Biff, including uh, relatives. Yeah. I think there was seven. And, and when you think about it, you're like, oh, wait, how is there seven? Well, there's the Biff that we originally meet in 1985. Yeah. Then there's young Biff. Okay, there's two. And then when you go into Back to the Future 2, you have Griff, old man Biff. Now we're up to four. Alternate 1985 Biff. Yeah. Now we're up to you know, five. And then um, there's uh, Mad Dog Cannon. And then the final Biff is the one that we see in Back to the Future 1 whenever, after George punches Biff out in 1955, we see the subservient Biff. Yeah. To the McFly family. So there's seven variations Tom Wilson had to play, and he had to tailor his uh, uh, portrayal of each of these characters ever so slightly to fit it because the 1985 Biff, the original one, and as I like to call him, President Biff in the alternate 1985, I mean, they're essentially the same guy, except one has the volume all the way turned up, and he's even crazier. And just to you know alter that and not make it seem too over the top, Tom Wilson, man, did such a great job in these movies, and I really do feel that as much as Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd and Crispin Glover and uh, Leah Thompson all knocked it out of the park. I mean, just I don't know if there's ever been a perfect, more perfectly cast movie than Back to the Future 1. Biff Tannen, again, I put him up against – I'm coming after these Star Wars guys. I know it was May the 4th <laughs> yesterday. I'm coming after them. I put him up against Vader. I put him up against uh, any of them, yeah. any of them. Uh, Job of the Hutt, any of your Star Wars villains, I put Biff Tannen up there because he just he pulls it off so well, and he's an he's a hateable but menacing idiot, and the way that Tom Wilson pulls that off is just spectacular. I mean, I can't tell you how many times because when I like I said when I was when this movie came out, I was ten and fifth grade. How many times we would say to each other, "Make like a tree and get out of here." Um, you know, it was just, it just, his lines became quotable and that's how, you know, a movie is memorable is how many times you quote it to your buddies. And I can't tell you how many times I've quoted back to the future, uh, to my buddies. Um, hell, we were playing on a, a virtual online poker game last night and we were just sitting there 
reeling off Back to the Future 1 and 2 lines. Um, it, it's a supremely quotable movie. And my favorite quote, though, from the film is when they're in the Baines house in 1955. Marty had just woken up, you know, and his, his mom's there or whatever. And they are all eating dinner. And can Leah I, Thompson can I guess, grabs Can I guess my, which one you're going to say? Can go for it. Who the hell is John F. Kennedy? No, no, oh. that, that's a close second. My, it's, it's the line. It's the line. Very soon thereafter, when Leah Thompson grabs, uh, you know, Michael J. Fox by the thigh. Michael J. Fox gets up. He's like, "Oh, thanks. It's great. It's great to see you." And he leaves. And his future grandfather says, "He's an idiot. Comes from upbringing. His parents are probably idiots too." I tell you, Lorraine, you ever have a kid like that? I'll disown you. <laughs> disown you. Yeah. Such a great, such a great line. I love that. Yeah. No, I mean that whole scene of of him being back in 1955 and his mother's hitting on him, and he's talking about, you know, well, we have two TVs. Wow, you must be rich. Like, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Classic. What's and, a rerun? Yeah. What's a rerun? And he's watching. It, it just so happens to be the episode that when we saw him in 1985, after, um. Lorraine's brother, Jailbird Joey, got out of jail. It just so happens to be the same exact episode that his dad was watching at the time. Like, again, the continuity really is great there. Um, you mentioned something about uh, this being the perfect movie, and this actually came up recently. In the last couple of weeks, James Gunn, who did the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, among others, he recently, on a tweet during quarantine, was basically just telling people, list their five most perfect movies. And then he all he threw out Back to the Future as one of them, but then said, well, it did have that one imperfection of why wouldn't present day 1985 Lorraine and George remember Marty, which then caused Bob Gale, who wrote the movie, co-wrote the movie, put an end to that argument by saying, well, you got to remember, Lorraine and George only knew a Marty character for eight days 30 years ago, and they didn't even see him for all eight days when they were 17. So it is possible that you wouldn't remember a face that you barely saw 30 years earlier. And I was like, Oh good. They shut James Gunn down. Cause it was, I mean, it's, it's really, it was really a great back and forth. Cause I was like, cause I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't they remember what Marty looked like? But then when he explained it that way, it's like he was only there for eight days and they didn't see him every day. So, you know, why not? Remember? Yeah, I know. It's interesting. Because I, so as a Back to the Future fan and, and doing the podcast, it's a question that I get in my Twitter mentions, in emails, comments on the podcast. I'd always got it. And crazily enough, Steve, I would say the same thing. I would say something similar, not the exact same thing, but I'd say, hey, man, I went to high school with a lot of people and I don't remember any of them. Yeah. You know, I don't remember any of them. I, if it wasn't for Facebook, I wouldn't remember what they looked like. And I had actually was on doing an interview for the, for the book a couple days prior and said that. And it was crazy when I saw Bob Gale said essentially the same thing of how would you remember somebody who was around for eight days? And then the argument is, well, wouldn't you remember how you first met? You'd remember the guy that you most likely named your son after. And I get all that. But again, would you think in your wildest imagination Oh, yeah, the kid that I have 30 years from now is going to look exactly like Calvin Klein. So I think that it might have even been a thought in George Lorraine's mind, like, hey, then he kind of looked like, ah, oh, no, whatever. You know, I mean, I think that you can really write it off. And I don't think it's a big enough plot hole to really make a stink about. But I do think that what Bob said is is the way to go on it. Yeah. I, like, here's the thing. I didn't graduate high school too terribly long ago. 
Uh, and I don't remember anybody. Like I literally don't remember anybody I went to high school with. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think that you could write that one off as whatever. Yeah. It's not a major plot hole, but it's something to like, because obviously when you watch a movie like this and a movie like Avengers, obviously you're, you're completely suspending disbelief on something like this because it can't happen. This isn't based in reality. There right. is, is no such thing as time travel. And like we mentioned earlier, there are no rules when it comes to this. So you can kind of make up your own thing when you do time travel movies in, in, you know, Lost got really crazy in season five when the whole season revolved around time travel. Um, it got very confusing because they were taking liberties that, again, I put back to, well, wait a second. This isn't how Back to the Future did it, so this isn't being done right, right to me. Um, here's, here's, a, here's a continuity one that I want to run by you, and I've, I've, I've mentioned this to my buddies for years, and again, it's kind of like what we just brought up. It's not a major plot point. But it's something that has always kind of grinded my gears. And it's when Marty goes back. Um, it's, in, it's in the second movie. It's when he confronts Biff. He throws the remote in the hot tub when he's with the two scantily clad women. Or maybe they were topless. I don't even know. I think um, that they were, there were no clad. Yeah. <laughs> there were no clad women. Um, yeah. So they were to- topless. And he wants to know about the Gray Sports Almanac. And Marty asks Biff, where did you, you know, how did you get it? Where did you get it? And he says, November 12th, 1955. And then Marty says, you know, that was the day I went back. Oh, wait, that was the day of the, you know, Hill Valley light storm, you know, Hill Valley lightning storm. And then he said, yeah, he goes, I was, I was take, picking my car up from the shop after I wrecked it in a drag race. And Marty says to him, I thought you crashed it into a manure truck. And Biff says, well, how do you know that? And he says, well, my father told me before he died. Okay. So I went back and I did the math on this. I don't, have you ever thought about this by any chance? Or am I bringing I some haven't. Up? I haven't, okay. but now I'm doing the math in my head as well. Okay, so when George McFly, when, when Marty sees in, in alternate 1985 that George McFly died March 15th, 1973, we're assuming that Marty is, what, 17 or 18 at that point? I think he's 17. He's 17 in the movie. 17 in the movie. So when he is in alternate 1985 and he's claiming that his father told mm. him Biff crashed his truck in a manu- into a manure truck. So he would have been five when his dad told him this. I'm like, okay. I mean, would 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 a five year old Marty really remember? Uh, and that's if and that's if Crispin Glo- or you know George McFly tells Marty this literally days before he dies. Uh, I mean, we're looking at he could have told him, but waiting till the last possible minute, Marty was at max five years old. When his dad told him about a drag race that his buddy did, or uh, a, a race that uh, wrecked his car into a manure truck at five, I've always thought that was a little sketchy. <laughs> that you Marty know what? Would remember That's that. crazy, Steve. Because I've never thought about that. Oh, no yeah. one's ever talked. I've never seen that talked about anywhere. And <laughs> I guess, I guess the out would be Biff, your know, President Biff in the in nineteen eighty five wouldn't be sharp enough to do the math that quickly in his head. I think that would be the out, right? Yeah. Because he'd be like, oh, oh, before he died, oh, okay. Well, anyway, let me tell you about this book, kid. Yeah. Um, I think that would be the only out, but that is a phenomenal point that you bring up that I might have to explore more at a later date and see if I can find some information on. Because, I mean, I remember stuff at five, but I don't know if I'd recall a story that my dad told me about a guy that he worked with who you know crashed his car in a drag race i don't even think i know what a drag race was 
at five, especially a manure truck. Um, so yeah, that, that's an interesting one that you bring up. I think it's smaller than oh, the, yeah. why does his par- partners, I mean, why did his parents recognize him? But here's the thing. It lends credence to why these movies are so great because these aren't plot holes. These are nitpicks. Yeah. These are like, oh, well, what about, you know, what about this? What about that? And that's what you have to do with these movies. You have to nitpick to find something that, that you could perceive is wrong or a plot hole or something. And you know because what? Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, they wrote these things. And I don't know if you know exactly how they went about it. They went about it in this method called the note card method where they would write – the way they plotted the story out is they would say, okay, what do we, who do we want Marty McFly to be or what do we want him to do in this movie? Oh, we want him to invent rock and roll. That would be cool. So they put it on a note card, Marty invents rock and roll, and they put it on a bulletin board. And they're like, oh, wait, for him to invent rock and roll, we have to establish that he plays rock and roll. So they have another note card, Marty plays rock and roll. And that's how they plotted out all the story points for the movie, is writing it that way. I think that's why it's so tightly knit, because anytime they brought something up, they knew, okay, somewhere we have to do exposition, or we have to show or establish that he's a skateboarder, or he's a rocker, or he's whatever. Yeah. No, I. And you know what? In that example that I just gave you, I wasn't even calling out Biff for not calling out Marty. Like, how would you remember that? It was more on my end of how would Marty actually remember a story like that? You no, know? yeah, I agree. Yeah, I wasn't, yeah, I, agree. I wasn't even thinking the Biff end of it where, because I automatically assumed because Biff wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer that, yeah, he wouldn't do the math in his head right away and be like, wait a second, you were five and you remember? No, I wasn't even thinking right. about that. So that's even funnier and, that and you brought that point it's up. it's still plausible. It's yeah. still plausible that he would have remembered it at five. Unlikely. Unlikely, but plausible. But plausible. Yeah. If it was, yeah. you know, at the age of two, then you could be like, okay, major plot point that they, well, not major, but not believable. But still, yeah. Right. Five? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, you're in kindergarten. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, would so I mean, remember something my dad told me now and what he told me in kindergarten? No, but it's not <laughs> far-fetched to believe, um, you know, 12 years later. As a 17-year-old, he remembered a story about his dad's friend who crashed into a newer truck. Not too far-fetched, but probably said, not plausible, but it is possible. Um, <laughs> right. Here, here's something that I, either, I'm con- either I'm totally blanking or I just haven't put enough thought into it or whatever. But there's a scene in the first movie. It's after um, George punches Biff out. Um yeah, and they, they and and they're going to the storm is coming. Marty runs back, is telling Doc, "Hey, um he's ne- you know, he's never served a biff in his life." And Doc says, "Never?" And then Marty says, "Yeah, why?" And he says, "No, forget it." Am I missing something there? What was Doc referring to? Why did he hesitate with that answer? I well, so what I think that it is is I think that it was because the, the entire time, 1955 Doc was big on don't interact with anyone, don't try to change anything. Yeah. And then, you know, Marty in, in, ends up interrupting his parents' you know, future meeting, and that's, you know, the whole thing that they have to go through in Back to the Future 1. I think that that was an allusion to that as well, is Doc wanted Marty's parents to get together so that Marty would be born and the timeline would be corrected. But now there's this little extra uh, of change in the space-time continuum where George McFly stands up to Biff and Doc, I think, thinks in that moment, okay, what could that do? 
Oh, well, I guess worst case scenario, you know, he's just a little bit more confident. Okay, never mind. I think that that's what it was is he was like, okay, well, I'm just going to screw this. And what's actually kind of funny is that moment where Doc, who's been so stringent about don't, you know, interrupt the space-time continuum, don't try to change anything because it could have an effect on your future. I think that moment where he said that and kind of shrugged it off almost – alludes to what we see just a few minutes later when Marty finds out that Doc wore the bulletproof vest because he taped the letter back up. Yeah. I'm guessing he figured what the, you know, like he says, I figured what the hell, what, what's the worst that could happen? Might as well go for it. So it's actually a slight deviation in Doc, and he kind of gets that back and Back to the Future too. But even that, think about that, uh, is at the end of Back to the Future 1, after all this time saying, don't interact with anybody. Don't mess up the space-time continuum. Doc comes back for Marty and says, something's got to be done about your kids. We got to go to the future and yeah. fix this, right? So we see this character deviation of Doc at the end of the film. And I think that that moment was the first sign of that. Okay, see, I didn't. I was like, is he referring to something that I still haven't picked up on to this day? Or is it more of a, like you just described it? I didn't know if it was a particular instance where it was like, wait, he did serve up, you know, he did stand up to Biff and the, and the doc is aware of it. But I was like, well, he's in 1955. He wouldn't be aware of it. Right. Yeah. So I was like, okay, maybe it's not. And I, it, it's, it basically goes to what you said. Um, I, I, I keep going back and forth on this. You bring up some very good points in your book because as we've talked about this, this perfect trilogy and, in Hollywood nowadays, everything is about rebooting things and doing sequels and prequels and stuff like that. I still don't know how I feel about if this movie were to ever be rebooted. Um, I don't know, but give me your side that you explained in the book about and and your thought process on this of would you like to see a reboot of this at some point? Okay, so I'll start by saying I'm not rooting for one. Because a lot of people that hit me up, they're like, so you want a Back to the Future reboot or remake? I'm like, no, no, I'm not rooting for it. But if it were to happen, I'd be receptive to it. It's really only if the Bobs were involved in some sort of fashion or they gave their okay. But this this thought came to me. I, I went and saw the, I think it was 2016 Ghostbusters film with the all-female cast. Yeah. And I was pretty amped because I love Ghostbusters 1 and 2. And I was like, okay, boom, new Ghostbusters. I know the original cast are in there somewhere. Let's go. I'm excited. I got about 25, 30 minutes into the movie, and I'm like, I don't like this. I don't find this good. And I know there was like a lot of controversy about the film at the time, and that had no effect on me. I just didn't like the movie. I thought it was kind of, eh, all right, you know. And then I was like, man, that sucks. They kind of just ruined Ghostbusters for me. And then I went home that night, and I watched the first Ghostbusters. And when I was watching it, I realized, that movie had no effect on my love for the original two Ghostbusters films at all. It didn't take away from my enjoyment whatsoever. So then that's when I started thinking, well, if they were to do a Back to the Future movie, a new one, a reboot, a remake, a sequel, whatever, and it's phenomenal and it's awesome, then I have a new Back to the Future movie in my life that I can watch again and again and again and love for all time. But if it sucks, I I never have to watch it again. Yeah. And I just pretend like it doesn't exist, like the Ghostbusters Answer the Call film. So that's where I came to, if they're doing a new one, I'm receptive to it. I'm not going to go out in the streets and boycott it by any means. 
really only if the bombs are involved in some way. But I'm not rooting for it. I I accept it, and and that's kind of where I stand on it. Yeah, I I haven't. It wasn't until I read your book where I was like, "Do I need to start thinking about this?" And I I I don't know where my mindset would be if they if they made a second one. But listening to what you said, I, it'd probably be the same thing where it's just like, "Look, I I hope it doesn't happen, but if it does." It's still not going to change my love for the original trilogy. Nothing. I don't think whatever they put out in 2020 or whenever, if they do do one, it's not going to be as good. I already know it's not going to be as good. It's just, it's just not. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy it. Or if it does suck, just be like, okay, well, it sucks. I'm never going to watch it again. Uh, I'll stick to the original. And, and here's the thing, Steve, is I say this now. <laughs> I say it in the book. If they were to announce a Back to the Future film tomorrow, I don't know what my emotional reaction would be. Yeah. I might be completely pissed off. <laughs> you know, I could be. Yeah. It's the, it's theoretically possible. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not thinking fourth dimensionally, I guess here, but I, uh, like I said, it's just one of those things I'm receptive to. Like, I know they have a new Ghostbusters movie that's supposed to come out this summer. It's going to come out next year now, but um, I'm open to it. Like I'm hyped for it. I want to see it. It looks good. So let's see where it goes. Yeah. I really do think that there's a, there's a possibility that something gets me. Ma- like you said, I, I do do the Bobs own some sort of property of this? Like, could there be one written and they are not part of it, or do they have to sign off on this? The, from what I understand, they have to give their approval. Okay, they have to give their approval because they not only did Zemeckis direct all three of them and write them with Bob Gale. I mean, they created it. It's their you know intellectual property, if you will. But I, I guess Universal owns the rights to the films and everything. But they have to give the okay. And they've both said on multiple occasions over my dead body. So I don't think that we're going to see it here in the near future. And I, I hope both Bobs live to 150. So we'll see, we'll see what happens, but it's one of those things to where the movie is so popular. I mean, right now, even in this midst of this crazy time that we're living in drive-in theaters are opening up or some movie theaters are opening up. And what's the first film they're showing? They're showing Back to the Future. They're still showing this movie. Uh, and, and they're thinking, hey, if we show Back to the Future, people are going to come watch Back to the Future. It's just one of those. So it's such a popular franchise that I would be shocked if at some point in our lives something doesn't come of it. Um, and I wonder if people would be more receptive if it was like a 10-part Netflix show as opposed to a, a feature film. I almost wonder that because I know a lot of people love The Mandalorian. Yeah. And they're saying, oh, I'd rather watch Star Wars television than watch the movies. And um, I wonder if that would be the the avenue because we have the animated series, which I enjoy. But a, a live action, you know, Netflix style Back to the Future, you know, series, maybe that's something. I don't know. Yeah, it could it could work. And, and, and a lot will depend again on on casting. You know, you just you have to hit it with casting. They they swung and missed with Eric Stoltz at first, and then when you mm-hmm. when you look back on it now, you're like, and now granted, you can say this for a lot of things. You hear this argument over the years about like you know a television show like Friends, like oh my god, nobody could have played Joey better than Matthew LeBlanc. Well, we don't know that because you only know Joey as Matthew LeBlanc. Um, right. However, <laughs> I say that, and then I say there's nobody that could have pulled off Marty McFly better than Michael J. Fox. Um, I you know, I just can't. Who were the people that were up for it? Charlie, um, John Cusack was up for Marty McFly. Um, oh, they, they, and there was the, the litany. I think Charlie Sheen, Johnny Depp. I mean, there's a bunch of people. Who's who, who were oh, up in for, Hollywood back for, then? For, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Everybody went and read for, for 
Marty McFly. Um, and, you know, so, some of them were more, uh, I guess, you, you, I could see some of them, right? I think that the more interesting one is everybody who was up for Doc Brown. There's so many weird names, you know, Christopher Lloyd, of course, but they had a casting sheet that had Bill Cosby, Eddie Murphy, Mickey Rourke, Treat Williams, uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Harold Ramis, Gene Hackman at one point, Gene Wilder. They were all people who were considered for Doc Brown. And again, I think that they hit the casting right on the head with Christopher Lloyd. But it's one of those things to where um, you, you don't know. I even think that Steve Martin and Chevy Chase were considered for, for Doc Brown at one point in 1985. It would be – I guess it would be kind of a weird thing to see Fletch in a movie with Marty McFly. Yeah. But, um, you know – I'm, I, it, it's the casting of the movies were so great, and I think that it's why when Crispin Glover, you know, left after the first one, they they had to write George mainly out of the story. Jeffrey Weissman took over the role and played him, you know, upside down in the ortho lev and yeah. had some kind of far and away scenes, uh, and and Jeffrey did a, a great job with what he was given. Right? I mean, he 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 only had so much to do, but um. I think that it proves that, you know, they hit the nail on the head with this casting. They really did. You know, of all so those- if they were to do it again, it, it would have to be properly cast. And what's interesting is the Tom Holland, Robert Downey Jr. thing, I think is pretty good casting. Yeah. If, if you want to be honest, I could see a Sherlock Holmesy, Iron Man, Tony Stark version of Doc Brown and, and Tom Holland has that comedic chop that Marty McFly needs to have. So I could see that going in there. And then I could see completely unknown to get in. You know, you, you don't know what these things, if it even happened. If there were a back to the future sequel or prequel made or a reboot made, and they said, Robert Downey Jr. is playing doc Brown and Tom Holland is playing Marty McFly. I'm in, I would, I would, yeah. I'd be excited for it. It might not be, it might, you know, I don't think it'll still ever be as good as the original, but I think, doing something like that with characters that we've seen act in films before and seen have this, you know, friendship from the Iron Man, Spider-Man thing. I think I'd be down for that. You know, it's funny when you were reading off all those names for Chris to play Doc Brown, the one name that stuck out to me that I was like, I could see that none of the other ones that you named, I could see for whatever reason, Harold Ramis stuck out to me. as like, I could have seen that. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, maybe it's because the Egon of it all. Yeah. But I, I, I think that he, he could have pulled it off. I mean, Jeff Goldblum now maybe could pull it off. Yeah. Who, who the hell knows? Yeah, that's um, true. There, there, uh, we did a, a podcast um, on the Back to the Future show where we tried to recast the movies, you know, and, and it was really difficult. It was very difficult to try to come up with names other than, you know, Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr. I think Eddie Murphy was thrown around for Doc Brown. So there's, I mean, it, it's not the easiest a role to cast. And I think that the longer that the movies go without any sort of reboot or sequel, um, the increasingly more difficult it's going to be because these performances are exposed to new generations every single day. I mean, especially during this time and with all back to the futures being on Netflix, I'm sure there's a 10 year old like you were in the movie theater or a seven year old. Like I was when I first saw the films, watching back to the future for the first time and there's no way that you could convince them anybody else could be you know doc brown or marty mcfly in 2015 just out of curiosity when it got re-released in the theaters for that like you know fandango did a thing where they do that with movies did you go 
Oh, absolutely. Man. Yeah, yeah. 2015, I was, I was all in. Yeah. And, I, and I talk about it in the book, too, on Future Day. Like, I thought I was going to get arrested at one point um, <laughs> uh, for trying to get a copy of the USA Today. Uh, I, I was all in. Uh, in in that in 2015 especially on future day and it was the first film that i watched i watched back to the future 2 on january the 1st 2015 and i watched back to the future 2 december 31st 2015 i, I was like i got to bookmark these days because this is the only chance in the history i'll have to do this yeah and uh so it was pretty cool i remember i remember in 2015 in the major league baseball playoffs Oh yeah, I How bet I, I bet on the Cubs strictly, and I even wrote about it in my website. I said I'm putting money on the Cubs to win the World Series only because in 1989, Back to the Future Two predicted. Now, granted, they're not playing Miami; uh, they're not going to play Miami at any point during these playoffs. But the p- whole point was the Cubs won the World Series. I'm going to do it. Granted, I ended up losing, but we were off only a year because they won it in 2016, and it's crazy. And and there that. was like I, I don't remember them all. But people can look it up online. There are all these weird, like parallels. You're like, you know, how you've always heard like um, the parallels between Kennedy and Lincoln. Like Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy, and uh, Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. All that stuff. So they, there was something like that for the Cubs World Series win and Back to the Future Two. Other than Back to the Future predicting it a year off. There was like Back to the Future 2, I think is like 103 minutes or something. And it had been 103 years since the Cubs won the world. There was all these like weird things like that. I can't remember them all, but wow. at the time it blew my mind. Um, I, I mean, I could sit here and talk Back to the Future with you forever. Uh, I want to move on to one other thing that you and I both have another mutual interest in, and that's wrestling. I've been a, yeah. I've been a wrestling fan since fifth grade. I was first introduced to WrestleMania 3. Uh, going over to my buddy's place and watching it on VHS, and I haven't stopped watching since. Um, I am a big fan, and you know what's going on now is I mean, look they they can only do with what they the virus is obviously affecting a lot of people's lives. Mm-hmm. But what is your thought on wrestling right now? It's I, I'm sure you've talked about it on your show. I, I want to know right. what you think of and what and what Booker thinks of how long can we do this? Because it's really showing how big that the audience and the crowd is at these events that really adds to wrestling, because I am really just fast forwarding through most of this, uh, you know, on Monday and Friday. It, nights. It, it's different, right? Yeah. Obviously, it's different. It's not the norm. It's not what we want as a wrestling viewer or even Booker and I um, have a promotion here in Houston. It's, it's his promotion that I've worked with him on for now eight years um, called reality of wrestling. And we've had to cancel all shows. Yeah. Um, as of right now, we haven't even done any empty arena shows or anything like that. We've canceled all shows, um, which has hurt us, you know, obviously economically and, and hurt our, our, our YouTube channel. Although we just released the roast of Booker T, which seems to be doing well, but to go back to your question, it's, it's the wrestling um, is, you know, obviously we know sports entertainment, but it's the only sport out there that is 100% predicated on fan reaction. So the fan reaction tells you which stars are popular, which stars are, are, are over, as we say, as bad guys. Yeah. It tells you who we need to, you know, push up the card, who, you know, who we need to do this. And then for the competitors themselves, their moves are, are dictated by, or their, their performance is dictated by the audience reaction. I liken it to um, a stand-up comic going up there 
and telling jokes to an empty room, you don't have any feedback. You don't know, oh, I'm onto something. Let me do this a little bit more. Or, oh, man, they just reacted to that big move. Let me just lay here for a little while. It's it's so predicated on the fan reaction. So to do it without the fans is hard, man. Yeah. And I have a bunch of respect for all the boys and girls who've been going out there and putting on the best matches possible, especially at WrestleMania, um, which is one of those things you talked about getting to be a wrestling fan at WrestleMania three. I'll never forget watching WrestleMania 35. That's something I'll never forget now. Yeah. Or 36, excuse me. Yeah. WrestleMania 36, something I'll never forget now. Um, because I was at WrestleMania 35 the year prior with 80,000 fans in New York city. And then you go to the next year and you're watching it on your couch and there's no one there. And I had plans to go Tampa and go take in WrestleMania and um, those guys are working so hard, so hard, Steve. And and to have no feedback from the crowd, it's it's even that much harder. And I just read one of the Uso brothers got injured in his ladder match at WrestleMania. And I remember talking to Booker, and he was like, you have no idea how much more those bumps from that ladder hurt without a crowd being there. Because you got a crowd, you got your energy going, you got adrenaline running. Yeah. Um, and you know, you might not feel it at least at that moment. You might feel it the next day when you wake up, but at the time you don't feel it. So it's hard. And it's hard to watch too. I mean, to be honest, it's it's not the easiest thing to take in. Um, but when there's nothing else on, sometimes you, you just do. I don't think though that the ratings, because I know that they've been turning in like record low ratings. I don't think that we can really fault wwe or aew or any of the wrestling companies right now for faltering ratings because we're on we're we're in unprecedented times and i think that it's it's hard to say oh well you know what their television audience is just falling off maybe the product isn't as hot as they think it is no there's no crowds and they're hard the shows are hard to watch because there's no crowd yeah i will say there are people who are rising to the occasion like the Zelina Vegas of the world, who I think is just doing a phenomenal job right now all around as a utility player on that roster. Um, she's been a shining star with these shows from the Performance Center. And then, you know, I feel bad for Drew McIntyre, yeah. who's the current WWE champion. He, I was there. The Royal Rumble was in Houston this year. You know, I was sitting, I don't know, six or seven rows back whenever he won the Royal Rumble. And the entire place, 50,000 people strong on their feet cheering for Drew. I thought they made a new superstar in one night and then, you know, this hits and he has to have his WrestleMania moment in front of nobody. He has to start his run as WWE champion in front of nobody and then have the stress on, Oh, by the way, you're having some of the worst ratings in the history of this company or the history of this television show. It's gotta be a pressure filled situation for him right now. And um, he's just going out there though. He's not showing it on his face. He's going out there. He's working hard. He's trying to do the best job that he possibly can with what's given to him. So, you know, my heart goes out to people like that. And, um, you know, hopefully this thing ends sooner than later and, and we can get back to wrestling with, with you know, limited crowds in the safest way possible. Um, once they get the thumbs up on that, I think that we'll be back in business. But I'm with you. It, it's difficult to watch right now. Yeah. No, it's just it's just a completely different product. It's it, And it's going to be the same way when sports comes back. I, I know that people are fired up and – I'll take and you know there was a survey on ESPN that seventy two percent of the audience says I would take sports with no fans over waiting having no sports but in you know until we can get fans no I would rather have sports with no fans before that and I'm just like 
I get people want sports, but again, it's going to be a different experience. I think after a few games, you're going to be like, ah, you know, because I'm a huge college basketball fan, NBA fan. Momentum swings in basketball are a lot predicated on crowd getting into it. You know, your home team is down Mm -hmm. 12 and you go on a 12-0 run. A lot of that is spurred by the other team taking bad shots because the other crowd, you know, the the opponent's crowd is getting back into it. It's just, and you're going to have none of that. What if someone hits a game winner uh, in any game, whether it's regular season or playoff, and there's going to be no cheering other than what's coming from the bench? It's just going to be bizarre. Yeah. No, it's it's weird. So I, I um, you know, I'm an NBA fan too. Uh, down here in Houston, uh, Booker and I show is with the ESPN affiliate out here. So yeah. I get to cover the Houston Rockets. is a is a nice perk of mine. So. Uh, this was the first year I got media clearance to go cover all the home games for the Houston Rockets, and and you know during the first season this happens right, and so um, I'm actually looking at my Houston Rockets press badge right now. It's just sitting there, sad and wanting to be used. <laughs> but I I think that um is the thing is I watched the the UFC has a show this weekend, and I watched they had a a, a, a no crowd show in um, brazil i believe right before everything really got hectic and it was i think fighting is okay i i I think that with that one for some reason the crowd doesn't bother me obviously when it's there um earlier this year i got to see john jones go out there and 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 defend his championship in in the toyota center in houston and i mean the reaction to jones was unbelievable so obviously you know, you'll be missing stuff like that, but I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with the majority. I, I'd rather see some sports than than no sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, but I'm with you. I agree 100, percent especially in basketball. I've seen James Harden go out there and Russell Westbrook feed off that crowd and go on this crazy three point run, or Russ is driving it and kicking it to the to the to the corner to PJ Tucker and he's nailing, you know, nailing threes. But um, at the same time. I think that all these guys want to go out there and ball too. Yeah. You know, I think everybody wants to get back and, and, and get back to normal. And, and what's, what's crazy about some of these athletes, especially think about somebody like LeBron James, who, you know, the Los Angeles Lakers number one in the West as it stands right now. And LeBron's having another phenomenal year and he's having to sit on the sidelines when he's, I think 35, 36 years old. I think he's 36. Um, yeah. He has 36. And you know the clock's ticking on LeBron, and he's sitting there saying, "I can't, I can't. I wasted a season last year. I can't waste another season this year." Um, so I know a lot of these guys are itching to get back, and I'm sure it's not fun for LeBron that everyone's sitting home talking about how Michael Jordan is the greatest ever, and no one can ever catch him. Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting time in sports right now, for sure. Yeah, and I just I, I think to possible baseball season, there was a rumor just started last night that. Um, June 8th, teams are going to go back to spring training number two. July 1st is going to be opening day, and everyone's going to play in their home parks. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but if you if you do that and opening day is July 1st this year and they go maybe into a little bit deeper into October and it doesn't end September 30th, um, is, a, is a 100 and 110-game season in front of no fans in the record books, are you going to determine whoever wins the World Series this year? Is that really going to be – I guess it's. I guess it's up to each individual person if you really think that that's going to be your champion for this year. It's almost like this is just a a silly season year. It's just like, oh, we just did it for fun. But I don't know. I have a hard time recognizing whoever wins the World Series this year if if that's the way we go. 110 game season in front of nobody. I don't know. 
It would it would be odd. Yeah. It would be odd. I would tell you though that the uh <laughs> the team that's probably happiest the season <laughs> the has been delayed has been my Houston Astros. Yeah. Um and 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 I I think that this has taken a little bit of the heat off of them, I hope. Yeah. And that if they play this season with no fans by twenty twenty one season, man, we might be right back to business. Yeah. As usual. I'm I'm hoping. Um because it, it was a rough early part of 2020 for the Houston Astros and the Houston Astros fans. Certainly with no fans, there will definitely be the ability for everybody sitting at home to be hearing trash cans banging. If there's no, <laughs> if there's no fans in the stands with the Astro games this year, like they'll get caught. Well, man, it was a competitive it. advantage. Yeah. It was a competitive advantage. <laughs> um, uh, Brad, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad to have you on. Like I said, the book is called back from the future you can get it on amazon i'll link to it uh when the when the when the podcast goes up uh i really appreciate it It was fun uh finally getting to talk to you i know jen had told me she's like you got to talk to him you guys would get along and um it was it was really good to uh to hear from you and uh, to talk back to the future with you i appreciate it and uh we'll keep in touch oh absolutely man i appreciate you having me on and, and jen's phenomenal yeah she's a phenomenal human being she's phenomenal she's phenomenally talented and I'm glad that I, I was able to cross paths with her. That led me to cross paths with you. And uh, everyone, give me a shout on Twitter if you want to if you want to talk Back to the Future anytime at Brad Gilmore. And yeah, man, let, let's keep in, let's keep in contact. I'm always around. Yeah, you got it. And the uh, and the Back to the Future podcast, um, obviously on any podcast platform that you listen to podcasts, you can check that yeah, out. Um, yeah, we're about to wrap our our sixth season is going to wrap on May the 11th. Um, this season's been crazy. I had Don Full Love on, who played Mayor Goldie Wilson. Leah Thompson was on the podcast, and Crispin Glover all this season. So go check that out uh, wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, no, I definitely, I'm definitely going to get caught up on some old episodes as well. Um, and like I said, I finished the book in in one sitting. So uh, check it out. Back to the, Back from the Future is the name of the book, and Back to the Future the podcast you can see on it, you can listen to on any podcast platform. Brad. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks, Steve. You got it. Thank you so much to Brad for coming on today's podcast and talking about his book, talking about Back to the Future. I hope you all enjoyed that. That was a trip down memory lane for me. Um, if you weren't a fan of the 80s or even not a fan of that movie, I think there's still a lot of interesting stuff. And if you haven't seen that movie, gosh, even the first one, what is wrong with you? Go and Go and see it. We're in a quarantine now. Everybody's got plenty of time. Go download Back to the Future and check it out. It is, uh, you just, I, maybe it's hyperbole to some people. I'm telling you, there are there are movie directors out there, well-respected people in the industry calling it the perfect movie. J.J. Abrams, in, in Monday's Josh Gad YouTube video where he had the whole cast and talked about it and had J.J. Abrams on. J.J. Abrams is calling this the perfect movie. It really is. Like, it's... It's so entertaining from beginning to end. And I know it happened in 1985, and it seems like so long ago for some of you, but still, it is a great, great movie. Even a guy like Brad, who hadn't even seen the movie until 10, 15 years after it was released, um, and it became his all-time favorite movie. And, you know, it's debatable about the trilogy thing. This might be the greatest trilogy in all of cinema history. Clearly, something like that is subjective, but he brings out a pretty good case. And his book... Back from the Future, which you can get on Amazon, it presents a lot of things that you have to think about when it comes to this movie and this franchise and some of the acting in it. He presents a lot of good cases. Granted, he is coming from a, uh, a side of bias a bit because this is his favorite trilogy. 
uh, of all time. But I'm telling you, it's worth it. Go check it out. So please, uh, I really appreciate it. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Back from the Future. His name is Brad Gilmore. Uh, thank him for coming on. I really appreciate him doing this. Thank you all for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and review an Apple Podcast. It's much appreciated. And uh, we'll be back next week with podcast number 183. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. And we will talk to you next week. See you.